HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Whole Foods Market, a dynamic leader in the quality food business, a mission-driven company that aims to set the standards of excellence for food retailers. For more information, visit WholeFoodsMarket.com. I'm Erica Watts, host of Let's Get Real, the cooking show about finding, preparing, and eating food. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Good afternoon and welcome. It is time for What Doesn't Kill You? Food Industry Insights with me, your host, Katie Kiefer. Today we're going to be talking about cattle. And uh, my guest is Nicolette Hahn Nyman. She is a rancher, an attorney, and a writer. Much of her time is spent speaking and writing about the problems of industrialized livestock production, including the book Righteous Pork Shop, Finding a Life and Good Food Beyond Factory Farms. Uh, she's written four essays on the subject for the New York Times. She writes for the Huffington Post, Chow, and Earth Island Journal. Previously, she was the senior attorney for the environmental organization Waterkeeper Alliance, where she was in charge of the organization's campaign on to reform the concentrated livestock and poultry industries. And before that, she was an attorney for the National Wildlife Federation. She joins me today to talk about her newest book, Defending Beef, the Case for Sustainable Meat Production. Welcome to the program, Nicolette. This will be fun. Thank you. Thank you, Katie. Great to be here. <laughs> oh, I'm so glad you feel that way. Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I like it when my guests are happy to be on the show. Oh, I'm delighted. Oh, good. That's great. Um, I, you know, I love talking about meat. It's kind of my favorite story. So, um, so the first half of your book, which I read with great interest, uh, pretty much describes the environmental impacts of cattle production. Um, so why don't you explain why it is you propose that livestock grazing is actually the best use for much of our grasslands, as opposed to, you know, all the naysayers who say that cattle are, you know, discharging too much methane and uh, trampling the ground into desert, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Well, there are two main, I mean, first of all, it's important to note, as you, as you just talked about grasslands, about 40% of the globe is naturally grassland. It's, that's mm-hmm. what is intended to be there. It's the ecosystem that has evolved over hundreds of thousands or in some cases even millions of years. And we, as a human species, we actually, you know, we wiped out pretty much all of the wild animals that once covered those areas. And the way that grasslands have been maintained for hundreds of thousands of years was through the presence of those grazing animals. So when we think about 
the United States, for example, what you know, what 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 before it was the United States even, in like in eighteen hundred there were about seventy million bison in mm. in the Americas, and that was actually probably just a remnant of what had been there before that. It was once an enormous herd, and when you think about those pictures you see of like up in the Arctic of the, the those massive herds of caribou that are yeah. you know migrating across these enormous tundras. That is a tiny fragment of the caribou population that we that we once had in in the northern parts of the Americas. So if you just think of the globe as you know what it was before you had massive human intervention, mainly through agriculture. Interestingly, um, it, it 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 looks nothing today like it once did. So once it was covered by these incredibly, you know, large, heavy grazing animals, and the ecosystems that are still trying to exist you know, need those animals, and basically the animals aren't there anymore. So the cattle that are there today that are, you know, controlled by humans, the good thing about cattle is they're like those grazing animals and humans have control of them. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we as, you know, because they're domesticated animals, we as humans have a lot of ability to control sort of their movements, you know, where they are, how many there are, how long they're in that spot, etc. And so we can actually do a pretty good job when we do it correctly of um, mimicking the role of those wise, wild animals that once covered the globe and are now gone. So that's a really important thing to understand. The other other half of it is in diversified farms. So you have cattle that can be part of a rotation of lots of different kinds of plants and animals all working together, sort of mimicking a natural ecosystem where you have plants and animals constantly functioning together. And cattle play a really valuable role in that type of farming operation as well. So it's two different kinds of functions, but they're, they're incredibly valuable uh, in, you know, in farming and on the grasslands of the globe. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um, so um, there is something that cattle do uh, as they graze that is particularly important, and that's like clipping the grass so it grows back fast, and that helps build a soil system. Um, so why don't we talk a little bit about why dirt is so sexy and why you know it's really important to um, maintain that uh, soil health through soil conservation techniques, which are part and parcel of grazing cattle over large parcels of land. Yeah, well, what's becoming increasingly clear, you know, sort of among in the scientific community, it's becoming recognized that the best opportunity to re- not just reduce the the global warming emissions of agriculture and about you know food production, but also to sort of contribute using agriculture as a way to actually mitigate climate change, is by taking carbon from the atmosphere and sequestering it in the soils. So sort of returning it because actually a massive amount of carbon has been released to the atmosphere that was once held in the soils. And so what part of what is now being discovered is that the best opportunity to do that in agriculture is with grazing animals. I talk about this in quite a bit of detail in the book yes. because this is this is a really important point for people to understand. And basically the reason why 
grazing animals do that the best. There are other ways to, you know, to reintroduce carbon into the soil and to get it to stay in there. It's not the only way to do it. But the reason why there's been so much interest and excitement in the, in the notion of using cattle to do that is because there's some very good research that's been done, like especially at, uh, at, the, at the Department of Agriculture, the USDA, that shows that when you have continual vegetative cover, when you have essentially, especially undisturbed, so basically that means the rangelands and the pasturelands, um, right. then that presents the greatest opportunity for soil um, carbon sequestration in the soils. And the reason for that, it's very, it sort of gets into a lot of um, tricky science that I don't fully understand, but I understand it well enough to sort of get, get the basics of it. Basically, you have a very detailed, very complicated sort of below-ground community of microorganisms. These include bacteria and fungi, and some of these are beneficial, some of these are not, but actually the vast majority of them are beneficial. And in the in that micro uh, economy below ground in the soils, you have all kinds of um, really interesting interactions between plant roots and uh, and the fungi and various bacteria and and uh, and the nutrients, and there are all kinds of exchanges that take place so that the nutrients can get into the plants and so that the carbon gets into the soil and and is in there in a stable way, and the. The best way for this to happen is actually in grasslands. That's sort of the most effective way to foster a healthy below-ground economy down there. So that's why there's so much excitement right now um, with the idea of using cattle to really foster this. And one more point on that I want to note mm -hmm. is that um, there's a scientist at USDA that's been studying this for a long time, Dr. Christine Nichols, and she has shown that there's something called uh, glomalin, which is actually a sort of a glue that actually holds the carbon in the soils, and that the best way for glomalin to be uh, to be um, created and fostered and maintained is in native grasslands. So even kind of one step beyond just you know grasslands, she's actually shown that it it. It works the best when you have the grasslands that have been there for you know thousands or millions of years even. So it's um, the science is pretty complicated on this, and it's still just emerging. Uh, there are very few people in the world that um, really understand it very well. Yeah, <laughs> but there's you know there's more and more realization that these these grasslands are incredibly important, and that grazing animals are an incredibly important part of maintaining those grasslands. Hmm. Well, one of the things that you mentioned quite a few times is Alan Savory, and I've been hearing that. I've been traveling a lot this fall, um, and I've been to, I went to South by Southwest Eco, and he there was a presentation about his work there, and I went to uh, Chef's Collaborative, and there was also a presentation there about Alan Savory, and of course I've heard his TED Talk, but I've also heard a lot of pushback um, from other uh, scientific organizations about his um, sort of rotational grass, what he proposes, and you will correct me if I'm wrong, of course, is that uh, he suggests that uh, intensive grazing for short periods of time with very uh, dense populations is the best way to manage uh, grasslands holistically. And, um, and yet uh, people like uh, the scientists behind realclimate.org and a journalist, George Monbiot, have all, uh, you know, have all said, no, that's absolutely ridiculous. So, you know, it's, I mean, on the face of it, it certainly sounds... Um, 
you know, like a good idea, maybe not the dense population part of it, but the, the rotational grazing certainly makes a lot of sense to me. And I know that Polyface Farms practices that and a lot more farmers are, are moving into that kind of uh, practice. I think you do that as well on your ranch, right? Right. And what I say in the book is that we're not as fully um, uh, uh, functioning with the savory methods, the Savory Institute, the holistic um, mm-hmm. uh, management methods having the population really dense and so forth. We've done that uh, more in that direction in the past when we had um, more help here on the ranch uh-huh. because it actually takes more uh, human labor to do that. Oh, sure. But to be honest, after having done uh, all the research for this book, I'm really determined that we're going to get our ranch back in more in that direction again because I really do believe in it. it w- what's important to understand is the critics of Alan Savory are actually defending the status quo because he is he's challenging a deeply held orthodoxy among not just among environmentalists but really among like rangeland scientists who mm-hmm. who there's been this idea that for a long time that you sort of want to have as as light as you know as light a footprint as possible on the right. lands in order to maintain them he's really trying to get you know, the sort of rangeland uh, science community as well as the environmental community to really rethink that whole idea. That's why I was talking a few minutes ago about trying to think about the globe the way it existed for millions of years before humans essentially eliminated all of the natural, you know, environments that were right. here as we've done. And, and And again, I want to emphasize, I don't just mean in New York City. I'm talking about agriculture which has you know essentially almost covered the globe has sure. radically altered uh, the what the globe once looked like because when you plow the earth I spend quite a bit of time talking about this in the book when you plow the earth that is the single most damaging thing you mm. can do to that the environment the ecosystem that existed there before you plowed it and the globe has largely been plowed. <laughs> okay. oh, there are, you know, we've completely altered it. And, uh, you know, I quote, uh, Wes Jackson, who's, you know, who's a great, uh, great thinker about food and agriculture, mm-hmm. um, who's the founder of the Kansas Land Institute. <coughs> Excuse me, Kansas based Land Institute. And he talks about agriculture as being the single most damaging things that humans have ever done to the globe. He's not talking about cattle grazing. He's talking about plowing the land okay yeah. so people it's so it's so weird people have this thing in their head it's just fixed in their head that if you have grazing animals on the land that's going to damage it yes. but if you plow the land and create you know vegetable crops grain or vegetable then it's okay yeah. and i i am arguing in my book it's the opposite okay it's like completely wrong and we really need to rethink that so Alan Savory is going to have his critics. He's, he's got a growing following, and a lot of the people that are incredibly enthusiastic about what he's doing are the practitioners because yeah. there are people that are managing thousands of acres all over the world using grazing animals, and they're adopting his methods, and they're seeing dramatic results from doing that. And what they're finding out is not just that you get um, much denser and much healthier vegetative cover on the earth, which is the most important thing you can do to protect soils and to build soils, but they're actually finding that there's a dramatic, and they've they've measured this in a lot of different geographies and in a lot of different ranches and farms that that are doing this, but 
they've measured a dramatic increase in how much water is held in the ground. So that is an incredibly important point. People are, you know, we're in the, the worst drought in California. I'm in California. Yeah. We're in the worst drought in California in over 100 years here. So there are people saying, well, gosh, maybe given the lack of water right now, we should look at things like cattle, whether we should even have them here. That is exactly wrong, because there's nothing that makes soil more water-retentive than well-managed grazing. And that's what we need right now, is we need to figure out ways to most effectively use the water, make our soils healthy so that they keep the water. The water doesn't just rain and then run off and disappear. That's what happens in badly managed uh, grazing operations and, in, quite frankly, in a lot of crop operations. You basically, sure. it doesn't hold the water, and it also runs, uh, you know, it washes away a lot of the soil. So cattle are incredibly important um, for making the, the ground optimal as far as water usage. Yeah. What, you know, so in the face of that information and in the, in the um, sort, of, uh, sort of current experimentation with this new model that you're suggesting, and Alan Savory gave that talk about three years ago, I think, and has been practicing his method in uh, Africa and Zimbabwe specifically for much longer. But why do you think that there is so much pushback when it does appear to uh, reconstitute soil matter uh, and uh, hold more water? And certainly, um, you know, crop... Uh, Crop farmers are finding that, you know, no-till and cover cropping is certainly helping them manage drought a lot more effectively. And it's, it's just curious to me that there is so much pushback um, from conventional uh, sort of pundits on, those, on the, you know, agricultural front who say, no, no, that can't possibly work. Why do you think it's, they're so stubborn about it? It's because it is diametrically opposed what's been, you know, taught in every you know, class, so in a, you know, every college mm-hmm. in the world has basically been teaching the opposite of what he's saying. So it's important to, you know, to, for your listeners who, who are not familiar with Alan Savory, I think it's important to, to explain who he is. Yeah, yeah, um, sure, sorry. He's, you know, he, his training, <laughs> know, he grew up in Africa, in Zimbabwe, and um, his, his, actually, his father was involved with I I can't remember what his father's profession was, but for some reason he used to go frequently with his father out onto these vast tracts of land that were being managed in some cases with, you know, like game reserves and so forth. Well, he was a wildlife conservationist, yeah. In some cases there might have been some grazing there. But he he talks about remembering as a child being in these areas where there was discussion about the fact that this degradation was taking place because either there were too many wild animals or there was too much presence of the domesticated animals, and that he he talks about remembering that everybody believed this was true, and that then he went to college and he became a wildlife ecologist because he loved wildlife and he loved the outdoors, and and he was determined he wanted to be, uh, you know, helpful. He wanted to contribute to the solution of these problems because there was more and more land degradation. We You know, we all kind of know this. This is why you have these massive famines in Africa. Why, sure. Part of the reason why Africa has had so much trouble uh, being able to produce enough food for its populace and so forth. So 
he went and studied wildlife ecology, and that's what he, he graduated from college with a, a degree in wildlife ecology and began working as a game officer. And his whole job was to try to protect uh, and to, to improve the condition of um, these large game reserves and to try to protect the wildlife populations that were there. And they became convinced, you know, I mean, it, he was taught, and, and what they were doing in that job was they were actually culling large large animals, and he talks specifically about elephants, because they believed so firmly, everyone believed that these large animals and the impact that they were having, you know, the physical impact, the eating of the vegetation and the trampling was what was destroying the land and what was creating drier and drier conditions. And, you know, they were seeing diminishing wildlife populations and they were seeing drier land, more, you know, water holes and stuff were just disappearing and the land was becoming drier and more compacted. So... He was actually part of a massive operation to uh, to to cull thousands of elephants to sort of try to restore these lands. And what he was seeing in in, in he talks about this in the TED talk, but he also had, was involved in a number of efforts like this, where they 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 actually were killing all these animals and thinking this is going to improve the soil, this is going to improve the wildlife populations, and they found the opposite. Yeah. And he just began to say to himself, this is ridiculous. We're doing this stuff. We're all believing this this approach, you know, reducing these large, heavy animals on the land will improve it. And it's not happening. And in fact, that things are just getting worse. And so he began exploring the idea in a various different ways that perhaps actually the presence of those animals was more important than their absence. <laughs> and so and then he, you know, eventually, you know, he says he always hated lobs, livestock and, and that he still really doesn't particularly like cattle. He has no passion for them. It's the wildlife he wants to protect. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that's what, you know, it's funny. I, I, I've heard Alan Savory speak a couple times. And in one event, he was speaking to a large group of ranchers. And, you know, everybody there um, loves cattle pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> and he kind of was standing at the front saying, you know, I don't really like cattle that much. I'm not that <laughs> fond of them. And sheep. But really, I, but I love them as a way to manage the land. We we need yeah. them. And he was talking about this, and th- I think that's a really important thing to understand. He's not someone who you know it came up as a rancher and is trying to defend what he's doing. And you know, similarly, my background is all in environmental work. Yeah. And I became increasingly intrigued and interested in these ideas because I was also seeing, you know, my whole background is working as an environmentalist and acting as an environmentalist. You know, since since high school, I've been involved in environmental right. causes. And, and I was kind of seeing the same thing in a different way of just this orthodoxy that had developed of, you know, cattle are bad and the fewer that you have in the land, the better. And, and I was increasingly... It wasn't making any sense to me because you, there are examples all over the world of where you reduce or even completely remove the animals from areas that were totally, you know, badly degraded. And what happens is the condition of the land gets worse. Yeah. And the reason is because you have to have the animals maintaining the vegetation and, you know, helping the soil to build, as we were talking about before, right. or else everything starts to collapse because the whole ecosystem is grounded on the ground. It's grounded on the soils. And the soils have to be healthy to create healthy vegetation, and the vegetation is what creates healthy animal populations. And then the animal populations 
act upon one another. He talks, and, you know, it's important to know that Alan Savory is a huge advocate of healthy predator populations. Yes, I know as well, that in your book not as just well. healthy yeah. grazing animal yeah. populations. You you have to have all of the pieces of the puzzle if you want to have healthy ecosystems. Yeah. Well, we uh, unfortunately have to take a short break, but we'll st- uh, stay with us, Nicolette. Don't go anywhere. I w- and uh, <laughs> and we'll be right back uh, with Nicolette Nyman. We're talking defending beef, uh, her newest book, and uh, we just have a quick sponsor drop, and we'll be right back. You are listening to Still the Best by Hard Bodies. Today's program has been brought to you by Whole Foods Market. Are you a locavore? Our Northeast Regional Forager for Whole Foods Market sure is. She spends her time traveling around the New York City metro area sourcing the best new or interesting artisanal and handcrafted local products for our purchasing teams at the local store level. Part of our commitment to our local suppliers includes assisting them with the process of getting their products sold at our stores. Whether it's suggesting packaging designs, pricing, or distribution methods, she's helping some of the area's best new products reach savvy shoppers at Whole Foods Market stores. Today, New York. Tomorrow, the world. For more information, visit WholeFoodsMarket.com. Hello, this is Mark Ladner from Del Posto, and you're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're back. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. And right now we're having an insightful conversation with Nicolette Nyman, author of Defending Beef. Um, And uh, we're talking about sort of different systems for raising cattle uh, that are a little counterintuitive, um, shall we say. Um, So, Nicolette, I want to go back. I want to leave the savory discussion because I think I want to talk more about your book than I do about him. Um, But I did want to ask you one thing about grazing. Like if all the cattle that uh, that are now sequestered in feedlots were instead finished right. on grass instead of yeah. on, on grain, you know, would we have enough grass to do that? Would we have enough uh, forage for them? I mean, I, I've always wondered about whether that was really, um, you know, a practical solution, at least insofar as the United States goes. Like in Australia, not a problem, right? But here in the States, right. we have a lot more development and a lot of arable land is, is falling to, uh, you know, urban sprawl. And I don't, right. it's kind of hard to imagine without using federal lands for grazing um, what we would do to feed all of those cattle up to their time of slaughter on grass. I mean, well, obviously, it should be noted, first of all, that I do favor using federal lands for grazing, which is happening right now. I mean, I think that should continue. I just think cattle should be better managed. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there, there's a term uh, overgrazing that you hear all the time. Yep. And the truth is, there's very little overgrazing happening in the world, um, and especially in the United States, because the numbers are actually, the cattle are very sparsely spread around, and the, and the number of cattle has been dramatically reduced in the last 30 years on federal land, we're poorly managing. I mean, there's a lot of, as a country, we're poorly managing a lot of the cattle on the land, but but as I you know, kind of go through this in a lot of detail, it's not about overgrazing. It's about grazing that needs to be better managed. So that's kind of another. That's kind of an aside. I want to get to the question you asked because it's a really important question. Okay, so the first point is, to, it's important to note that if you didn't have cattle in feedlots and 
And by the way, I'm not 100% opposed to the feeding of grain to cattle, and I can talk about that as long as you want to, but I won't get stuck on that point. <laughs> okay. but, um, but I do believe that you should have as cattle as much, on as much grass as much of the time as possible. Okay, And the reason is because there are all these huge environmental benefits to having cattle on, on the grasslands, but also because there are real downsides to grain production um, from an environmental standpoint. Right. If, you, if you did start taking cattle out of the feedlots and start putting them back on grass where they really belong, for one thing, you wouldn't have to use a lot of the land that is now being used for grain, for grain. So you'd have more land available for that. Hmm. I've, I've talked to a couple of agricultural economists over the years about this issue, and all of them have told me, all the ones I discussed this with that have sort of done a rough calculation on this, have said that actually if you, if you reduce the amount of land that we, that we currently have for grain production, and you put all the cattle you know, back onto the grasslands, and you got rid of the crop production that, that would normally be feeding them in the feedlots, you would have you could have about the same number of cattle or maybe slightly fewer. But I had a really interesting conversation just recently with the executive director of the Savory Institute, uh-huh. and she told me that they've actually done a calculation that if you were managing them the way they think that cattle should be managed, you know, sort of in denser herds where you're keeping the cattle much closer together and you're moving them a lot, right. you could actually, that you'd have way more than enough land to produce the same number of cattle that are currently produced. So so my answer is, if you needed to reduce the cattle numbers a little bit, I think that should be done. But there's another answer out there that could also be correct. And I, you know, I don't know, I haven't ever looked at the report they did on this, so I don't want to comment too much on it. But it's, you know, it's not necessarily the case, let's just put it that way, that there is insufficient land to have all the cattle we currently have on feedlots on grass. That's something people assume to be true, but mm-hmm. when you actually look at how it would be done and what it would take, it's not. It's definitely not necessarily correct. And if we had to reduce cattle numbers a little bit, we should do that. Well, they are a very big part of our export economy. So, uh, you know, I'm sure there would be people who would be um, really quite upset at the idea of reducing our overall herds, which are, as you know, uh, at their lowest uh, point in uh, since the 1950s, thanks to the confluence of drought and corn prices. But, um, right. I wanted there's been, a, to there's give... been a lot of reduction in cattle numbers yeah. in the United States, and that's important, too, for people to understand, because people believe it's part of, again, the assumptions people hold that we've been increasing our beef consumption and there are increasing numbers of cattle on the land. And when you actually look at the numbers, yeah. it, that's not true. Yeah. So that's yeah. an important, you know, basic fact to understand. Too. Yeah, it's, I mean, chicken is king right now. It's king bird. Right. Yes, exactly. That's <laughs> true. And, and I can talk for hours about chicken, but I'm sure you don't want to go. There well, we, right we're going to do that another time, Nicolette, I think. But um, one thing I did want to get to, because I, I really thought this was interesting in your book and, and maybe uh, some of the, um, you know, some of the facts that you bring out uh, about the health uh, you know, health and beef consumption, which, you know, cattle have been taking it really on the chin uh, about right. how unhealthy it is. And I just wanted you to get a chance to blow up some of those, you know, widely accepted um, half-truths and miscommunications about uh, eating beef and what it actually does for you. And also, we, you know, making the distinction that grass-fed does have a slightly different nutritional profile than uh, grain-fed. Right. I mean, and and it's important to note that the the nutritional benefits of grass-fed beef are sometimes really touted. And I, you know, I personally, we we raise totally grass-fed cattle, and our beef is totally 100% yeah. grass-fed. I think I, there are many reasons why I think that's the best thing. Okay, but 
I don't think the nutritional benefits are one of them. <laughs> okay, they're right? slightly better. You know, the the, the omega three content yeah. is better. And the the ratio of omega three to six yeah. is better. I mean, there are lots of different things. But the real advantage to totally grass fed beef, first of all, is you know you have the animals out in the landscape, like I was talking about, which are essential. That's essential to our ecosystems functioning properly. In addition to that, totally grass based operations simply don't do with a lot of the things that are really objectionable in modern, um, you know, cattle production. So, for example, I've never met a single person who's raising totally grass-fed beef that is using hormone implants. Now, in in the mainstream beef industry, hormone implants are still pretty much ubiquitous. So the growth hormones that are given, they're given, typically they're given to to calves, and then they're also given again when they go in the feedlot. So when you buy you know, regular mainstream grocery store beef, it's going to be from cattle that had been given growth hormones. Now, the American beef industry claims that that's, there's no problem with that. But there's very good evidence, you know, from around the world that that is a possible human health concern, and it's definitely an environmental contaminant, uh-huh, contamination concern sure. because the hormones, you know, go through the animals and they end up in the the ecosystems. Right. The same thing is true of antibiotic feeding. So again, nobody is raising, I mean, I shouldn't say nobody, because there could be somebody who's not doing this, but in general, there's probably a 99% chance that if you buy, you know, grass, totally, truly, totally grass-fed beef, especially from a local farmer or rancher that you know, or somebody in your region, and you know, and you learn about the operation, and it's a truly grass-fed operation, they're not going to be feeding antibiotics. And this right. is one of the most objectionable practices about modern meat production in general Absolutely. is the continual feeding of antibiotics because not only is that contributing to antibiotic-resistant bacteria in general, you know, sort of out in, out in the world, yeah. but specifically antibiotic-resistant bacteria are being found on grocery store meat. And actually it's a much bigger problem in pork and poultry, but it is a problem in beef too. So when you buy totally grass-fed beef, you are pretty much getting around those prob- those types of problems. And there are others, but those are a couple of good examples. So I think the consumer is much better off buying grass-fed beef. And I believe, again, going back to the ecosystem side of it, that we need to have the cattle on the grasses in order to get the ecosystem benefits of cattle. So I believe in totally grass-fed beef, but at the same time, I am not of the, you know, the camp of people that claims that all feeding of grain to cattle is wrong. That's just not true. We've been feeding cattle, you know, some grain since since cattle were domesticated, essentially. Well, you would um, have to. I mean, there's no grass in the winter, especially if you're right. in the Right, in certain <laughs> geographies, you yeah, really exactly. need to overwinter cattle with yeah. a little bit of grain. And the thing about grain is it is a much more um, nutrient-dense. You know, it has a lot more calories and nutrients sure. than grass does. So when you actually have cattle confined over the winter, like let's say in the northeastern United States where you're, where you're located, it actually makes more eco- economic and environmental mental sense to feed them something that's denser and smaller. You know, it's easier to transport it um, than bulky a low nutrient uh, feeds like hay. Mm-hmm. So there are, you know, the issue is a lot more complex than people want you to think it is. And there, there is some logic to some grain feeding in certain situations and in certain times of year. So, and I'm not a total opponent of grain feeding. We don't do it. I think total grass fed is optimal. 
Um, but I don't argue in this book that all, you know, all cattle should be fed only grass all of the time. That's not, that's not the point of my book. Right, right. Um, one of the, you had a list towards the end of the book uh, about what we need to change in conventional cattle production, um, which I thought was fascinating. And the one that really struck me was the stop slaughtering young cattle entry. W- why do you say that? Why should we stop slaughtering young cattle? Why, isn't there, aren't there uh, health implications to keeping cattle, trade implications to keeping cattle alive over 30 months? For example, the Japanese for years would not take any cattle from us that was 30 months or older because of bovine spongiform encephalopathy. I mean, you know, or right. mad cow disease, whatever. So this, is, this is another example of the oversimplification. I don't want to start a whole conversation about Ebola, but I'm just going <laughs> to mention Ebola oh, as why an not? Okay. <laughs> we see, you know, a really scary disease coming into the United States, and people are literally going wacko. Okay, yeah. hysterical. Yeah. Now, I mean, people that have no statistical risk whatsoever for coming in contact with Ebola are petrified. Okay, my sister is an emergency room doctor. My other sister is an infectious diseases doctor. They're actually dealing with this as a concern, and they're, they have sure. reason to be concerned, okay? But the rest of us, normal people that are not, you know, on the front lines of the Ebola question, shouldn't be panic and freaking out, but we're seeing it anyway. This, what happens is you get public policy. The reason I, I'm so troubled by the Ebola thing is I'm afraid we're going to get public policy that is incredibly bad, especially in the long term. Well, this is what happened with Mad Cow. So the United States never had a Mad Cow problem, and the reason we never had it was because it was happening over in Europe. Europe because they were feeding a lot of animal byproducts to their grazing yes. animals, their sheep and their cattle, and it was becoming a really serious problem. And so the United States was a little slow in reacting, but it did take action, and it said, okay, no feeding of animal byproducts to grazing animals, to ruminants. That was exactly what should have been done, and because that was done, the United States has really never had a mad cow problem. We've had literally a tiny handful of cases in, you know, decades. Okay. I mean, ever since the, the disease was discovered. It's essentially non-existent here. But because there was so much fear and panic about mad cow disease, you know, we had one case that happened, I think it was in 2003, was Mm -hmm. the first U.S. case. And so because of that one case, we adopted public policy that actually is ridiculous public policy, sort of like I'm worried is going to happen with Ebola. So what they said is, essentially, if the animal is over 30 months of age, you can't put it into the normal food stream. Right. It doesn't mean you can't slaughter any cattle over that age because that would that would be impossible in the food system. But it basically says if they're over 30 months of age, um, you know, you have to go through this whole special set of protocols. And what that essentially did is like a ban for beef that are over 30 months of age. Yeah. And and the reason why that's so absurd <laughs> is because first of all, even in the conventional cattle industry, there's no feeding of you know animal byproducts to ruminants, and that is the only only known method of transmission. Right. It hasn't been done in the United States since 1997. It's been illegal, and, it's, and there really is not, it hasn't been happening here. But because of that fear, we adopted this public policy. And the, and the policy is even more absurd when you apply it to totally grass-based animals, because animals that have, been, that have never eaten anything other than hay and grass, which is what is the case of all gra- grass-fed um, cattle, have a, literally a zero, zero, zero risk of getting mad cow disease. Right. But because of this you know, public policy that was a sort of broad brushstroke response to public fear, um, there's this 30-month rule. So the reason why I believe older cattle should be the norm rather than the exception uh-huh 
is, first of all, this is just an eating quality standpoint question. You get much better meat. Um, people who, you know, are really beef connoisseurs will tell you this. And, you know, my husband, I have to say, <laughs> Bill Nyman, the founder of the company Nyman Ranch, it really probably <laughs> knows as much about beef and the eating quality of beef as anybody in the whole world. Yes. And he's an absolute advocate of this position that, the, you know, the older cattle are, that's the only way to get really high quality meat. But if you just strictly look at it from a resources standpoint, an environmental standpoint, it also makes sense because the transporting and the slaughter and the processing of cattle is a resource intensive process. And when you slaughter an animal that's, let's say, 12 months of age or 14 months or 18 months even, it's a much smaller animal. You get a lot less meat than you do. So it really makes a lot more sense that you take every animal, you really grow it out to full maturity, mm-hmm. and then bring it to slaughter. You get a lot more meat and you get a lot better meat. And from a mad cow disease, if that animal has always been on grass, there's literally a 0% chance that it has mad cow. But doesn't so that cost a I'm lot I'm arguing more? against that, you know, that, 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 that public policy in the book, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> but doesn't it cost a rancher or like, won't it cost a lot more for people to keep their cattle, whether it's on grass or grain, won't it make it prohibitively expensive to do that? I mean, one of the arguments for cattle feeding operations is that they they grow so much faster. I mean, the you know the use of antibiotics, of ractopamine and Zilmax, of the hormones that you described earlier, uh, those are all uh, re, you know ways to make the animal muscle up faster and decrease that uh, length of time that they're on feed of any kind. So exactly. wouldn't it be very expensive yep. to um, just grow animals out until they reach that three or four or five year point that you're describing now? I mean, I, I don't see it how is. that's economically viable. I'll, and, and I'll tell you, the main reason is because, first of all, you basically have your money tied up. Yeah, in those exactly. Animals. And so it's just harder financially for farmers or ranchers to make that possible. And the other thing is, every minute, every day that an animal is alive on your farm or ranch is one more day that they might die from other causes, you know, yeah. from injury or illness or something might happen to them. And so then you lose that animal altogether and you lose all all your investment in the animals. So yes, there are significant uh, sort of financial challenges to making you know older animals the norm. But it's important to note that we had you know in in the in, in my book Righteous Pork Chop, I talk quite a bit about the history of the cattle industry. We had uh, in, in this country around 1900. The average age of a steer or a heifer that was not, you know, being raised for meat, the going to slaughter was four or five years. It was in that range. Wow. And we've completely shifted that. And now cattle are much, much younger because, as you say, they're being brought to market largely because of the feeding of antibiotics and hormones, getting them to big size faster. And yeah. we are raising, we're slaughtering them smaller and much, much younger. So I'm sort of arguing for a shift back to the the norm that doesn't rely on hormones, doesn't rely on drugs, allows right. the animal to mature naturally and is being fed a natural diet. And yes, it's going to be challenging for farmers and ranchers to make that work financially, but that's, you know, that's something that we need to look at. How do we fix that problem? Yeah. You know, to me, that doesn't mean we shouldn't do it. It means we've got to figure out, okay, how do we make it, how do, how do we get our banking systems and our, you know, agricultural programs to work in such a way that cattle can be raised that way? How yeah. do we help farmers and ranchers to make that possible? if they're not able to do it on their own. So to me, that doesn't mean we shouldn't do it. That means it's just a challenge figuring out how to do it. Yeah, I like the way you think, Nicolette. That's cool. Um, we <laughs> have you. like
Mike, we have unfortunately only about four minutes left, but I just wanted to, because one of the things that I loved, especially about the end of the book was your, you know, pointing out that, um, you know, speaking of things like hormones and, uh, you know, uh, beta agonist use and, and antibiotic usage. And, and, you know, I have, um, spoken several times in front of, um, big organizations like the Animal Agricultural Alliance and the, and the, you know, National Institute of Animal Agriculture and stuff. And, that, you know, and, and, and my message is always the same, which is like you, the consumer is speaking loud and clear. They don't want this right. stuff in their food. And yet right. when you read, and I saw you, you mentioned this in your, in your book, you know, cause I too read the trades obsessively drovers and meat and poultry right. and, you know, like meetingplace.com. I love it. And I read all right. the comments and I just can't get over the sort of completely blind determination to follow this course to, you know, its end and thereby right. I think really damaging the industry, uh, you know, uh, by itself, like they're, they're digging their own grave and I really can't it, it get totally. why they I, are and, not and, and, changing. You know, the, my book is called Defending Beef, but it is both a defense of beef and a critique of beef. And yeah. so one of the things I do is I talk exactly about what you were just talking about, Katie, this whole, you know, I call it tone deafness. They yeah. just refuse to listen, as you say, to this, you know, the consumer speaking loudly and clearly and saying, we don't want this stuff in our food stream. And, and what, if you look through the trade journals, as you obviously do, and so do I, yeah. um, it's an amazing, there's an amazing amount of defense of those oh, practices in those ludicrous. trade journals. They're just like talking about it constantly, that yeah. actually this is not a problem. And there's, you know, they, they're constantly doing different articles and purported studies showing that. And the thing is, the science on all this stuff isn't nearly as important as the gen, you know, as what the consumers believe. Exactly. And so even though I think the science is really good, that we shouldn't be doing any of those things, using beta agonists and using hormones and using antibiotics, whether it's good or not, right. the consumer preferences are very clear and very strong. I mean, so you don't see a chain like Chipotle. absolutely needs to move in that direction. Right. I mean, you don't see a chain like Chipotle grow as exponentially as they have. You know, it's not just because the food is good. It's because they right. they sell it as clean food, and that's what right. the customer is looking for more and more and more with every passing day. Unfortunately, we must wrap it up, my dear. I hope this will not be your first and only appearance on my program. This has been most enjoyable. <laughs> but in the meantime, let us promote, promote, promote your book, mm-hmm. Defending Beef. Uh, I'm sure you have a website. I'm sure you're doing events. Uh, let's hear about those. I have a website, which is just NicoletteHahnNyman.com, and that shows that talks about both of my books. Uh-huh. And we do have a Facebook page for Defending Beef, Now the Book, so people can Great. go on there. And there's, we've got a lot more than just the book events. It's all kinds of information about cattle and grazing cattle and Wonderful. the environmental and human health benefits. So those are great places to follow up for people that are interested. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you to my sponsor, Whole Foods Market. Love those guys. And uh, thanks to my engineer, Liz. And we'll see you next week uh, talking more about beef and pork and poultry. We got like just nothing but meat for weeks now. Ted Genoways is coming on next week with his new book, uh, The Chain. So do come uh, come back for that and we'll see you next week. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. <laughs>